From Dirty Spoon Media in Asheville, it's Home Fried, stories to keep you informed and entertained during the coronavirus lockdown. I'm Jonathan Ammons. For the past couple of weeks, protests have been continuing throughout the country in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, one in a long string of unarmed black Americans killed in incidents of police brutality. What is particularly striking about these protests has been their scale. Thousands of people filling the streets to face off against police lines in the middle of a pandemic. Some of the very same community organizers who have encouraged folks to stay home and stay safe from coronavirus are seen marching on the front lines of these protests. And while, yes, most of these protesters, in Asheville at least, were wearing masks, large gatherings of people is specifically what the last few months of the shutdown were supposed to avoid. But clearly, this is a moment of the principle being larger than the dangers for many of those in the picket lines. While the Asheville protesters were not sanctioned by the local Black Lives Matter chapter, they were actually encouraging people to shelter at home, that did not stop protesters from lining the streets for nearly a week. Things started to quiet down, though, after a city council meeting on the 9th, where several of the issues brought up by the protesters were supposed to be addressed. The council delayed the city budget discussion, which would have addressed defunding the police department, but they did tackle the issue of Confederate monuments, resolving to remove a Confederate monument in front of the courthouse and a Robert E. Lee memorial in front of the Vance monument. The council deferred to a committee to decide the fate of the Vance obelisk. For a little more clarity on the subject, I reached out to John Elliston. There are a lot of people you can talk to on this topic, I chose John because he is someone who has dedicated himself to studying the subject of Confederate statues in the area. He is the former managing editor of the Mountain Express, works as an investigative reporter for Carolina Public Press, and is the senior editor for WNC Magazine. Well, I think um, the most significant local event is that both our city council and our board of county commissioners are, are weighing resolutions to outright move two of the Confederate monuments from downtown and uh, form a panel to decide the fate of, of the elephant in the room, the Vance Monument. I think that would be the phallus in the room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Vance's lance, some call it. Yeah, um, I wonder if you could give us some context on what these statues mean, where they come from, how they wound up there, if you know any of that. Sure. You know, throughout the South and indeed some other parts of the country, um, memorials to Civil War leaders and soldiers and events were erected in mass um, starting a few decades after the Civil War. And then they, they came in different waves, uh, almost always coincident with some rise in either the civil rights efforts or some counter balancing rise in kind of what we think of as traditional white supremacist uh, assertions of power, especially in Southern communities. So a lot of the Confederate monuments, by now they're pretty familiar to folks, wound up smack dab in the middle of town, right in the, the heart of power hmm. for, for a lot of cities and counties. And have kind of stood there as, as silent but prominent sentinels to the racial order and towards a particular interpretation of the Civil War that really um, venerated the Southern cause, the, the lost cause doctrine as it came to be known, as though there was a real nobility to the South fighting the Civil War that, that didn't have much to do with race or slavery, yeah. which 
the you know the Confederate leaders who prosecuted the war would have disagreed strongly with that assertion. But by the time a lot of these monuments went up, they weren't around anymore. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Zeb Vance, he was our governor during the Civil War, and while initially kind of a reluctant Confederate, he uh, he did sort of participate enthousi- enthusiastically in the Civil War and um, had a lot more nuanced approach than a lot of Southern governors. But one thing where he wasn't very nuanced was that in the aftermath of the wars, he went on to become a U.S. senator and, and lead in other capacities. Uh, he was a strong backer of maintaining the subjugation of black folks and, and white power and, and denying the vote and other civil rights to black citizens of the South. Mm. And uh, he, he carried that those principles with him until his dying days. He was a pretty staunch defender of, of all the backlash against the idea of, of black folks truly being free. Um, one other nuance about Vance was is that he was famously eloquent. In other words, when he would wa- uh, wax racist, he would do it with a lot more panache and style and uh, verbiage than a lot of his contemporaries or many people since. So he gained this reputation as a great writer and orator, even though some of the sentiments he was passing on are not something most of us would think of as great anymore. Yeah. Yeah. When did when did that monument go up? Do you know? I believe it was 1898. I believe it was the summer of 1998, which is a big year in North Carolina politics because that very fall uh, was a white supremacist backlash, particularly in Wilmington, where there was a coup that basically overthrew civil society and politics and, and led mm. to a massacre of, of local black leaders and all their newspapers and banks and what have you. And basically the white power mobs there uh, destroyed democracy in the course of a couple of days. Mm. As it would happen, some of the most prominent figures in the, uh, in the, in the Wilmington coup and, and kind of parallel efforts that year uh, were some contemporaries of Vance and some huge fans of Vance. A lot of them were either invited to speak when the monument went up or couldn't make it because they were busy elsewhere. But we can read through the speeches that were made that day and the ceremonies that were made that day when the monument went up. And it's clear that what they were trying to do was not only pay tribute to Vance, but towards that whole political movement uh, as it was taking place at the time to to reassert white dominance over politics and society in the state. And um, they weren't too shy about it. Uh, you know, they, they didn't mince too many words about what they thought was the, the inherent goodness of their mission. Um, they, they really had an almost um, religious-like devotion to white supremacy, and it showed in what they said and did when they were putting these monuments up. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's also the one to the Confederate soldiers right in front of the courthouse. There's the one, the Robert E. Lee one right in front of the Vance Monument, which did Robert yes. E. Lee even step foot in Asheville? Like, <laughs> Well, what happened was, in the case of these Lee monuments, they're sort of stationed all over the South uh, because of an effort, uh, I believe, in the 30s to build pretty substantial highway systems connecting large parts of the country. And in the South, um, the daughters of the Confederacy and some other interest groups 
really labored to make sure that it was called the Robert E. Lee um, Dixie Highway. And so you will still see these Dixie Highway monuments that have Lee on his horse at points all over North Carolina and the South. Um, Just driving down the road the other day, I saw one in Asheville. I saw one in Fletcher. There's one in Southern Henderson County that was effectively um, vandalized about two years ago. Someone pried the copper plate off of it. Hmm. or the bronze plate rather and, and nobody knows where that went nobody nobody knows if that was a sign of protest or if that plate went to the scrapyard or something um but it's it's a fairly prominent consistent symbol to honor lee and uh, you know that it's about the size of a large television and they're all almost all designed the same and and again they're placed during or at rather prominent routes the intention was for a lot of people to see them and to be reminded that's who some people wanted to honor uh, as, as folks drove by. Yeah. Huh. What is the, what's going to happen with those statues once these get removed from what, what just passed? Well, you know, as, as we can see around the South and indeed around the country, these monuments are meeting all sorts of different faiths. Uh, some of them are just being torn down literally by protesters. That was certainly the case with the prominent one at University of North Carolina campus a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, same one that went down in front of the Durham courthouse. And um, it's happening all over. So some protest uh, groups are literally just going to take them down of their own volition or try to. Uh, in other cases, what's happening is, is that local governments are banding together and kind of coalescing around the idea that the monuments either have to be moved, be it to a cemetery or a museum, or they have to be scrapped, or they have to be recontextualized, wherein you might leave a monument, but you surround it with signage that tells you a lot more about the context of why they were there, who they truly honored, who they left out. I know they've done a considerable amount of that around Atlanta to some good effect to where some of the monuments stay, but you learn a whole lot more about uh, how they're fixed in Southern history and what they really meant. Yeah, yeah. In uh, the case of Van- Vance's monument, for, for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, this is a granite obelisk in the heart of downtown Asheville, which is a relatively liberal town in the scheme of things, but it's a huge monument. It's, it's, um, it's not going to be easily taken down. It's certainly not going to be easily moved. There are some locals who are suggesting that it should be renamed or otherwise reframed. And then there are some others who would like to see uh, the wrecking ball uh, taken to it. And then others still who say, well, move it to his birthplace in, in the northern part of Buncombe County where there's a state historic site. And it's anybody's guess right now what the fate of that monument's going to be. It's, it's not going to be cheap to move it if it ever does move. Um, so yeah. we'll see. There's there's not readily available options even for those who want to see it go away. Yeah. What what do you think is the most likely option on this? It's really hard to say. I mean, there's a certain ease and economy to renaming it, um, to recontextualizing it. As it happens, um, this fellow's name was Vance. One of the early African-American newspapers in Asheville was called The Advance. Hmm. So there's, there's been one novel proposal that this, the signage on the monument be changed to say Advance um, is both a tribute to that African-American newspaper here and uh, as a nod to the idea that we as a society are advancing 
beyond our old ways. And um, that, that idea picked up a little traction a couple of years ago when a local historian wrote about it in our local daily paper. And um, you might see more momentum around that idea. It sounds like, unless there's a big surprise, tomorrow night the county commissioners here in Buncombe will follow suit uh, with what the city council did in Asheville and choose to select a uh, committee of uh, 12 or less folks to prepare a report on what the options are for moving or recontextualizing the Vance Monument. And I don't know what time frame they were looking at on that, but there's a real sense of urgency around the issue now, obviously, given the protests and sort of spike in awareness. And, and just the idea that local governments would get behind the idea of moving the monuments at all is relatively fresh. It, it was just about five years ago that a lot of local civic institutions in our city uh, funded a refurbishing of the monument and got it a new plaque and cleaned it up and what have you. And so it was just a handful of years ago that the sort of accepted um, understanding among the city fathers and mothers was that, yeah, this is just part of our public square and we're going to shine it up and keep it. But you can see how quickly the dialogue has changed just in a few years. In fact, just in the past month. Yeah, I'm wondering, too, how far back the the pushback against this monument goes, because I know, I mean, Asheville was a pretty early hub in the pre-civil rights movement. That's what the whole Blue Ridge Community Center and all that, or Blue Ridge Assembly Center and all that stuff was kind of built as a as a haven for early black and white pioneers of the civil rights movement to to come together and meet in secret. You know, this was a, a city that was pretty progressive early on. And I'm I'm wondering if you if you know of any backlash to to these monuments or to any of that from dating back long long before these protests. You know, I I honestly think there was precious little because the idea was so unthinkable. There was such a part of the landscape, these monuments, that even if six or seven years ago someone had stood up and said, let's get rid of them all, it would have been a very foreign idea, at least into the mainstream discourse about this, where yeah. the tipping point is really in Charleston a few years ago when Dylan Roof, the white supremacist, walked into a prayer meeting and and shot up a bunch of innocent people and murdered them. And Subsequently, we all saw the photos of imposing with the Confederate flag and what have you. It's and in the I, aftermath. And that was on that. Calhoun Street, which is named for Civil War General. John yeah. Calhoun. Yeah. So, um, what happens then is that finally a lot of Confederate flags start coming down from state capitals. Um, and that, I think, introduced the idea to folks that, hey, the monuments could be on the table as well. Mm-hmm. And, that, and it wasn't long after that 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 woman scaled the or I guess that was when all those flags started coming down when the woman scaled the capital flag down there and removed the the flag herself. That's right in Columbia, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting to see all this just riling up because it is you know, and Asheville is a historically like we don't we we are the second whitest city in North Carolina. Is that right? Well. Yeah. The the only one wider than us is Boone. Um, mm-hmm. but we're we're peak, we're perched right around two point eight percent African American population. Um Boone has one percent. 
Um, and it wasn't that way. Like, it, I feel like it's been constantly driving out our minority population here. So it's just... Yeah, I think there have been decades of black flight, for lack of a better term, um, for a myriad reasons. Asheville didn't seem to offer a lot to young black students, to young black professionals, compared to some places like Charlotte or Raleigh or Atlanta or elsewhere. Um, there were just places that were more inviting and provided more opportunity for, you know, some of the best and brightest black folks who ever came through Asheville. Now, many stayed and many returned and many are kind of at the fore of movements now to, to try to uh, rectify our history on all this. But, yeah, the decades of that have certainly taken their toll. Yeah. Are we seeing much pushback to this this idea of moving these things? We are, and it's it's kind of fallen into some fairly common tropes. Uh, the, the one I hear the most, I, I hear two things. One is that they'll say Vance in particular was a complicated person and shouldn't be judged by the standards of her to- our times. Uh, the other vaguer argument that keeps cropping up is don't erase history. If we take down these monuments... We're going to forget our history and we're going to run the risk of, of making mistakes again, which I think is, a, is kind of the disingenuous core of the current argument in favor of the monuments. Because as we all know, monuments can go down, but history can remain in our minds and in our history books and in our museums and in our culture and our movies. And, yeah. uh, it's, not, it's not like the monuments are our only anchor to learn about what happened if that were the case, um, we won't go into the long list of despots who have had their statues taken down. We still know who they were. <laughs> right. We still know who Mussolini is, even though I doubt there's a statue to him anywhere standing in the world. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I remember not too long ago seeing, you know, our troops take down statues in Iraq uh, with great aplomb, you know, and we still know who Saddam Hussein is. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the root of that is that there's still a good amount of people who see these figures as primarily good guys and do not factor or do not think that the the misdeeds should be calculated in? Well, sure. And, and that's part of the triumph of the monuments. Uh, if, if you were raised in a city where all you saw was someone uh, saluted in your town square is noble and brave and uh outstanding in their times and that's all you saw well you know you'd be understandable why a lot of folks would grow up with those notions is particularly if you never heard a counter narrative yeah um so there so there are some folks who think that there was some almost indefinable nobility to the southern cause and i think part of it springs from the tremendous loss i mean the the war was a terrible thing for the south incredible amount of suffering and death and, and and dismantling of possibilities for decades for all the good that emancipation did. Uh, the war itself was a tragedy for the South. And so something that tragic is going to reverberate through history and folks want to ascribe some nobility to it. Like there was a reason we suffered this much. There was a reason we went to war. There was a reason we caused so much suffering. You, you want some justification for that um and so there's that that sort of seeps in through the low these many decades and then let's face it there are still white supremacists walking among us uh some are pretty upfront about it um i think they're 
their numbers are on the wane, but they've had footholds in Western North Carolina before, some of them kind of famously, and um, they won't go away overnight. Uh, but, you know, they're facing their biggest challenges in the modern era. It's interesting to see what sort of new permutations of their arguments spring up, but they kind of boil back to these vague ideas of the nobility of the lost cause that was this war and the, and the Confederate effort. And then a whole lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of frankly BS about black soldiers fighting for the South voluntarily and how, you know, I've seen this virtually a meme in the last couple of weeks where everyone, not everyone, but proponents of the Van Vance monument will say, well, you know, Van, the Vance family slaves were like family. And if, if, you, if you can hold that notion in this day and age with everything we know about chattel slavery, you're clearly not paying attention to what actually occurred or, or what it meant to enslave people at all. You, yeah. you, you learned your history from something like Gone with the Wind, and it seemed a lot more comfortable that way. And nobody ever told you different. and You just stuck with that idea. It, it sounds farcical on the face of it, but it's a surprisingly widely held view. Yeah. Yeah, Asheville has such a weird history with slavery too. Because I, I know I, I used to live in Kenilworth area where the there was that slave compound, where I guess slaves were rented because a lot of people couldn't even afford them. So when you hear people say like, "Oh well, Asheville wasn't a big slave town," it was. It was just it was owned by a wealthy few, and those people were rented like like a lawnmower to oh, other wow. people. And that's always just, I, I used to live right around the corner from that slave cemetery up there yeah. and just got digging into the history of it and realized that if you look in the register of deeds records, most of the slaves in Asheville were held by like a couple families and they just kept them all on this big compound up there. Interesting. And yeah. It's just, it's, it is a really, I don't know. It's a really sick part of our history. And I think when you, when you really look at that and understand what the the cause of the Civil War was, it was a South that was producing a large percentage of the textiles in this country were coming from down here, and it was all coming off of free labor. Yeah. So the idea of turning that in, yeah, they were going to fight a war over that. These people were not going to be as wealthy as they were. You know, they were going to lose lose their their estates to having to pay these people like they were people and have to treat them like people. And, uh, it just, it was entirely a motivation of greed, you know? Yeah. And, and just an unthinkable notion to them that, that they could upend their economic fortunes, but that they could also upend their assumptions about what made them superior and, and what made other races inferior. It was such a, it was, it was truly in their religion. It was preached from the pulpit. It was, mm -hmm. you know, um, it was splashed across the opinion pages of every newspaper. Uh, you know, it's as late as 1898 when, when Vance's monument went up, Asheville had an active white supremacy club. We know that because they called themselves the white supremacy club. And they would meet every month or so and say that the white man is superior and this is why it has to be this way. And prominent civic leaders were part of it. And they were proud of it. They weren't hiding it. Um, they really thought they were on the right side of history. Mm. That's that's a really on the nose name. 
Yeah. <laughs> they didn't mince words. Like I say, you know, for all the way we try to dance around today, what they meant, what they were trying to do and what their values were, they made it pretty clear in their own time. Yeah. Yeah. It's printed there. We have it in our libraries. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Clear records. Man, so when is all this stuff gonna gonna start happening? What are what are we what are we gonna see movement wise on this? Well, um, so today we're talking on the fifteenth, right? And tomorrow's the sixteenth of June. I believe that's when our county commissioners will take up this resolution. They'll on a party line vote. I assume they'll likely agree with the city council that the two um, smaller monuments have to go, and that at and that the owners, uh, technically the daughters of the Confederacy, need to find a place to put them. Now, th- some of Buncombe's Confederate monuments have been moved before, um, sometimes to m- make way for a new roundabout downtown. And they've wound up in the cemeteries of churches. They've wound up in more prominent cemeteries. Occasionally, they go to something like a military cemetery. And uh, so maybe that's where those two go. I, can we just we point may... out how weird it is to take a monument to an army that fought against American soldiers and put it in a military cemetery? Yeah, Sorry, that's just well, really odd to me. <laughs> well, and yeah, and you're seeing that reflected in the new debate or the growing debate about whether or not we still name major military bases after Confederate leaders. It, it seems counterintuitive and it doesn't really make sense. And you can see that that might be the next front in part of this big debate. When it comes to the monuments downtown in Asheville, I think we're likely going to see some lawsuits pushing back. That said, the the Daughters of the Confederacy, which is sort of the tribute group that installed a lot of these monuments back in the day, they're fairly moribund now. Um, They don't have a lot of participation, a lot of enthusiasm, and they've had terrible luck in the courts in North Carolina in the past two or three years. In a very similar situation in Winston-Salem a couple years ago, um, the, the town voted to move a prominent Confederate monument from downtown, and the daughters sued and dragged it out in court, and, and they lost because it was city property, and the city says, you can have your monument. You're just not having it on city property anymore. Yeah. And they're going to find themselves in a pretty similar situation here. It's it's city-owned property. Um I guess technically they paid for the monuments when they put them up. That is the Daughters of the Confederacy. But I don't think they can come up with uh, the legal power and argument and wherewithal to, to wage a successful lawsuit in this case. We'll see. Yeah. Um, those, are, those two are the easy ones. Those are two relatively small monuments. The big one we're talking about, Vance's Obelisk, it's, it's a logistical hurdle. You could say it has to go tomorrow, but that's a big hunk of granite Mm -hmm. yeah i've seen several proposals of renaming it and you know somebody suggested putting the names of of slaves that were sold in that square on it um you know which i I think would be an amazing thing to see but you know who knows it's a tough call you know there was a new wrinkle in the last couple of weeks that it was new to me rather is that you know, in some of these urban centers in the South, there there are still the vestiges of the architecture of the slave markets. There are stones where slaves used to stand on when they were auctioned. Mm-hmm. And part of me has always thought, well, what a telling thing to have in your community and something you better not forget. And it might be a real teachable moment, a teachable locale. 
But then I've heard really compelling arguments, predominantly from black folks in the last couple of weeks. It says, no, it's a reminder of tragedy and trauma that we don't need. We know this happened. And every time I walk by it, I'm reminded that my ancestors were regarded as less than human. And I don't need a hunk of rock to remind me of that. So it's, it's a yeah. fascinating discussion there. And I you know, prefer white folks would sit back and listen to it for the most part. But also, and I'm white, by the way. But I also would hope that white folks would step up to the plate and acknowledge some of their responsibility in building this public landscape of who we commemorate and actually weigh in about doing something about it. I'm afraid it's a little too easy to say, well, it's not my problem. I didn't do it. Um, even with the best of intentions, I think it is in some part a white problem because white folks did do it. Yeah. Yeah. We made the mess. It's time to clean yeah. it up. Yeah. Well, I I think you've answered most of the questions I had. <laughs> thanks for uh, taking the time. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for getting the discussion, keeping the discussion going. It's going to be a fascinating few months, no matter how this pans out. And it's pretty astounding how rapidly the events are proceeding, uh, based on how long we were stuck with what our public memory was going to look like. And public parks and plazas and cities like Asheville and all of a sudden it feels like there's there's a huge effort to look at it with fresh eyes and fresh voices and I'm hopeful about wherever that goes. John Elliston is an Asheville-based author, historian, and journalist. He is the former managing editor of the Mountain Express, an investigative reporter for Carolina Public Press, and is the senior editor for WNC Magazine. You can follow him on Twitter at John Elliston or read his work at wncmagazine.com. Home Fried is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I produce the show, and I write and record our interstitial music. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, manages our website and marketing, and keeps the car running. To catch the latest season of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, be sure to tune in to 103.7 WPVM the first Friday of every month at 5 p.m. You can also catch up on back episodes of the show, stream any of our podcasts, check out the artwork from our contributing artists, or support us through our Patreon at our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. As we near phase three of reopening the state of North Carolina, things are really changing, and so will our schedule for Home Fried. As the show becomes less relevant, we will begin phasing it out, but please keep following us, because we will continue to bring you relevant information. To subscribe, just search for the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts, always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume on the Dirty Spoon. Stay safe.